Woo, and we're back, babies. Yes, hello, faithful listener. Whoop, whoop, all eight <laughs> of you. Uh, we heard there were some listener complaints that it was quiet. So we will endeavor to talk louder so we can you can hear us. I didn't say anything. Don't get mad at me. It was all Mitch's <laughs> fault. Mitch's was the one who ratted on us. Oh, geez. Um, but I'm Dylan. And I'm Mitch. And this is the greatest podcast in history. Yep. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the best country in the world, uh, France. Oh, dang. I was going to say Qatar. Oh, Qatar is also <laughs> the best country in the world if you're like an oil baron. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we're talking a little bit about France, mm-hmm. uh, a country I've never been to, um, but I took French uh, starting in sixth grade, and I took it until I was a junior in high school. So wow. I can still say, you know, the names of uh, uh, foods. And how to say I am blank years old. Uh, how, how do you do that? J'ai vingt et un, maybe I had 21. Oh, I'm 21 years old. It technically translates to I have 21 years, Wow. which is a little dumb. But anyway, French, the, the language of love. Exactly. It's the most beautiful, le bel long. Uh, I don't know if that's French, <laughs> but it sounds like it is. It does. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about the French Revolution. Yeah. Uh, muddle our way through, you know, the bare basics of it. Yeah, and then move on to some talk about Napoleon and representations of Napoleon, both uh, during his reign and then post, uh, closer to the start of the 20th century. Yeah, it'll be really interesting because Napoleon himself was a man who was obsessed with his image and his legacy, mm-hmm. um, and so we can kind of talk a little bit about how that played out. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the quote-unquote specter of Napoleon uh, is, is still huge in France. Yeah. And is a huge, I mean, he's a huge part of their history and part of world history, too. Yeah. He ended absolutely. up conquering most of Europe. Yeah. He, he's a giant force. Inspired a number of other dictators to try and mm-hmm. follow in his path. Exactly. Um, so I guess we should start out a li- with the French Revolution. Yeah. Uh, I want to pull up a text Mitch sent me while we were planning for this the other day. Uh, just to give you a little description of how he decided the French Revolution went. Yeah. Um, to quote Mitch, tennis court, oath, tennis court oath, things spiral out of control, guillotine chopping, everything moves, Napoleon enters stage right. Uh, so that's Mitch's description of the French Revolution yeah, and how for, it went down. For all you AP European <laughs> history students out there, when you're writing your exams, if there's a question on the French Revolution, just remember those four points. Yeah. The uh, tennis court oath. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Guillotine, things spiral out of control, control. number two. Three. Uh, Guillotine gu- chopping everything off, which is apparently a separate point than things spiraling out of control. Very separate, yes. And then Napoleon entering. Yes. I mean, those are your basics, though. Uh, the yeah. tennis court oath is really what kicked off um, the, revo- the, f- the French Revolution, the revolution we all know and love. Exactly. One of the many, many revolutions to happen in France, though. Yeah. But when people prefer to the French Revolution, it's particularly to the, to the one we are talking about now. Yeah. And uh, which was 1792. No, killing it, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's the French Revolution is after the American Revolution. Correct. One thing that I did not know for like a really long time, yeah. or like didn't think about. I also thought about the French Revolution coming first, mm-hmm. but it did not. The yeah. American Revolution actually helped inspire the French Revolution. It did. It was it was very influential to a lot of um, the the people who were in French government who then started clamoring for their own, uh, you know, to, to have more authority away from the monarch and away from the um, extreme nobles so that mm-hmm. the, the lesser nobles, basically, the, the still very rich, uh, but not as powerful in the government, uh, those people wanted more control, and they were kind of inspired by 
the American Revolution to, to uh, try and achieve that. Exactly. There, I mean, there are even a few writers from the American Revolution who came over to France uh, and helped uh, write and do some of the um, work behind the scenes, at least yeah. getting people pumped up. Yeah. And it would actually become one of the um, the the big questions of, of American diplomacy, uh, right as we were getting our own um, government started, because the Constitution took... Um, started being used in, eight, in 1789. So Washington had just been elected into office and all of a sudden France is spiraling into revolution. And a big question was, would the Americans get involved or what they do? What would they do? Would they support the revolutionaries and Republicans um, as they had tried, tried to support the Americans or uh, would they just stay neutral and not uh, be sucked into it? And in the end, Washington decided to keep America out of the European affairs uh, which for a country that had no army and no navy at the time was probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> the U.S. should not have been entering anything in the world stage at yeah. that point in, uh, in our development as a country. Yeah, and that would actually, you know, starting a new Republican government and then entering wars would actually be a problem that the French uh, Republicans would have mm-hmm. um, after they started their revolution. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, um, and I guess talk, talking a little more about the French Revolution, um, as we talked about on previous podcasts, there are always like certain events that loom large in like national histories. Mm-hmm. Like for the U.S., like if you want to, there's you know hundreds and thousands of books on World War Two, World War One, the Civil War, American Revolution. Uh, the same thing um, in France and a lot of Europe. A lot of historians have written about the French Revolution. It's one of the big, big things. Marx uh, developed. A lot of his theories based around the French revolutions, uh, revolution and other revolutions as well. Uh, so, like the French Revolution and like the Crimean War are like the two <laughs> biggest things that we've like most Americans have heard about, but don't really know that much about, um, other than like the basic facts. Yeah. Uh, like I, I made fun of Mitch's text, but I honestly couldn't tell you that much more <laughs> about the French Revolution because I haven't really specifically studied it that much. Yeah. Uh, in any sort of depth beyond like high school and a couple of. Uh, uh, college-level classes. Well, just to give a, a very, very brief overview of the mm-hmm. tennis court oath, um, Mitch Lohr's yeah. Mitch uh, number one <laughs> step on your guide to getting a perfect <laughs> score on the AP Euro test. Um, basically, it's kind of what kicked off the French Revolution, and it was a, a scene where the lesser nobles in the French government were kind of trying to get the uh, trying to get more power, more voting rights for them, more control, and um, take away some of the veto authority of the upper houses of their part of their government. Um, and when they were denied entry because the uh, upper house kind of knew that they were going to try and do this, uh, they were denied entry into parliament. The kind of lower house members just left, said, "Screw you guys. Uh, we'll go uh, have, form our own club." And they went to a giant tennis court that was just down the street. Uh, and in this tennis court, they decided, you know, why stop at just making these demands? Why not just, uh, you know, take an oath of allegiance to a new kind of government that would grant us more power and more um, equality in comparison to what was being offered then? And uh, that's where you have a scene where they're in the middle of a tennis court. Uh, there's some guy raising his hand in the painting. and Yeah, the famous painting. Everyone's just hanging to. out and, and partying. 
Yeah, exactly. Part, yeah, just kind of chilling. most people know it through the uh, the famous painting. You probably, if you're in APRO right now, or you've ever taken a class in the French yeah. Revolution, you've seen this painting. Uh, it is an indoor tennis court uh, because it's very fancy uh, by Jacques Louis David, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, one of the most famous, most French names of all time. I think. Yeah. Um, it took him four years to paint it. Just browsing Wikipedia right now. Yeah. Um, it's actually a name that is very important to remember. Um, if we're going to be talking about Napoleon exactly, and his imagery yeah. as well. Yeah. Jacques Louis David is like the premier painter of the French revolution as well as post revolution, um, activities. Yeah. He's like the dude in French art for that period. Yeah. Um, so then, um, the end things just kind of, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. We, I mean, yeah. We can't I guess do, to we talk can't do to like preface what we're going to talk about with Napoleon the tennis court oath, um, that painting, in part, is what made it such a big event in the French Revolution history. Like, the act itself was very important for um, the revolution, but the painting, like, just elevated its stature um, to, like, this mythic level mm-hmm. of importance in the activities of the French Revolution. Like, there had a lot been going on before um, the tennis court oath, like, various famines in the country and various, uh, like, other movements and uh, political ideas happening in the salons. But um, it's become such like a starting point for histories of the uh, French Revolution because of that painting and just yeah. how powerful it is. Yeah. It's, an, it's a huge painting too. It's not like little like the stupid Mona Lisa. The worst <laughs> painting of all time. It's so little. Yeah, it is very small. Um, <laughs> anyway. So yeah. uh, next after um, the tennis court oath. It doesn't quite fall apart immediately after that. Yeah. There are some, quote, there is a period of success for the revolutionaries, I guess, if you want to call it that. Yeah. The fraternity, egality, and... What's the other Liberty, one? Liberty, egality, yeah. fraternity. And the slogan of the revolutionaries. Yeah. Um, and it becomes kind of a, a classic tale that you see in a lot of uh, revolutions, that take place within a single country uh, where some people are not happy with, some people think that the revolution isn't taking it far enough. Others people, others say that the revolution is taking it just perfectly far. And then then third group says that it's going too far. And then they start clashing. Um, I mean, in, um, in America, we were able to kind of hash this out uh, thanks to kind of some of the structure that was provided uh, in the English common law system. That already set us up with uh, kind of our own colonial congress and things like that mm-hmm. and, and those kinds of yeah. ideas. Uh, but with the French government, they really started chomping at the bit to take things one way or the other. Exactly. And I mean, no, we don't want to make too compare the American and French revolutions too closely. There are a lot of arguments saying that the American Revolution wasn't actually a revolution, um, that it was just a, simply like a transfer of power from like one group of white dude, like one group of like wealthy landowners to another group of wealthy landowners. And there was maybe like maybe a little more radicalness in the French revolution than the American revolution. But there, I mean, obviously the comparisons still do exist and still do like hold strength. It just shouldn't be like the number one thing you think about. Yeah. Um, And I personally would, would hesitate to say just because the American revolution didn't end up chopping people's heads off with guillotines. I wouldn't say that it was any less important than the French revolution or, uh, any revolutionary revolutionary in its own existence. Um, so that's my, my two cents. That's a point me and Mitch disagree upon. Yes, exactly. Break us apart. Oh, geez. (laughs) Greatest podcast in history. Torn apart. Torn apart by our views on the American revolution and how ill revolutionary it was. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess we, I don't know, we can skip ahead a little bit. because yeah. we, we we're should... <laughs> very hazy on the points in between oh, the tennis geez. court oath and uh, the Napoleon coming into power. Yeah. Uh, there's some people named Robespierre um, that come into power. Uh, a lot of very, very, the reign of terror happens, which is where all the guillotines, guillotines come in. Yeah. It's named after a guy, right? The guillotine? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he invented it. Um, so he invented it actually as like a way to make like killing people like better, quote unquote, because it was quickly quicker and painless and hanging. Um, but it became a symbol of terror uh, during mm-hmm. the French Revolution. Uh, so the French Revolution pretty much fell apart uh, as a bloodbath in Paris and beyond uh, with factions fighting and gaining control over one another um, and the whole idea deal of liberty, equality, and fraternity essentially falling apart under the banner of people trying to take power for themselves. And then um, a general, was he, did he start out as a general when he took power or is he lower than that? Uh, when, he, when he took power, he yeah. was, um, yeah, he was, a, he was a general. Yeah. And then the Napoleon comes along. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon's an, an interesting character. He kind of had a little man syndrome, uh, not in the sense of his height, really. He but, was normal height for the time. Yeah, um, in the sense that he never fit in amongst the gentry. Um, he was born on the island of Corsica, which uh, up until I think about five years before his birth was actually part of Italy or um, mm-hmm. one of the Repub- uh, city-states of Italy. And... Um, and so he wasn't, he was just kind of newly minted as, as French. His father was a very low noble in Corsican society and thought that one of the best ways that he could do it uh, to elevate their family status was to send little baby Napoleon to a military academy in, in outside of Paris. Uh, Napoleon arrived and immediately he was made fun of. He didn't speak French at all. He spoke Italian at that point. Um, and people made fun of him because he came from a, a lesser noble house and, uh, he didn't really fit in, but that gave him actually a, a determination and drive to succeed at any cost. Exactly. And he, I mean, he was, uh, for as bloodthirsty and as many people as he killed, he was like a military genius. He yeah. was incredibly smart. Um, he was very well versed. Planning um, was his like his main uh, skill. Planning and like sort of administrative tasks, and be able to handle all the small details that go into uh, controlling an army and especially planning for the future. Uh, it's, it wasn't like he wasn't just like a military genius because he could move you know battalions around in a field. He could plan to get supplies in certain places. He was a great city planner um, and a great like. He would have been a fantastic, like, I don't know, like, mayor or something. Like, if he was mayor of New York currently, like, New York would be probably the most well-run city on earth. Yeah. Because um, he just, he was able to, he, I mean, he, I'm sure he's like able, he didn't sleep that much. Like, all these, like, sort of, like, great, like, quote-unquote great, like, world leaders, like, never sleep. Um, he ate very little. He was mostly just, like, working. Like, that's, he was just, a lot of his skill was able, he's able to just work for, and focus and concentrate for very, very long amounts of time. Yeah. Um, and he was also, um, he, he had this kind of new take on how things should be run, um, not just um, government-wise, but military-wise. He was kind of part of uh, the new uh, form of military. He was an artillery officer is where he got his start. Um, and as we've seen in our, our very first, our second podcast. Yeah, the Dreyfus episode. Um, you know, artillery officers kind of were had a different uh, appreciation for technology and new techniques and strategy in warfare that a lot of like the other kind of officers t- 
technically usually didn't have, which oftentimes put them at odds with a lot of the um, the structured uh, conservative traditional military structures. Um, and so that's another way that Napoleon was kind of trying to, to prove himself. Um, exactly. So I guess the big thing we want to talk about is kind of how Napoleon represented himself mm-hmm. um, after he took power. Uh, and this is based off a lecture, a mini lecture, our very own Mitchell uh, yeah. gave to some students at DePaul. Um, it's going to require you to look at a picture so I don't know if you can handle this, dear readers, yes. dear listeners, I guess. Um, <laughs> but just go ahead and uh, get yourself to Google and just Google like Napoleon's coronation uh, and just click on the first image and you'll see what we're talking about. Yeah. It's a big old picture. Looks like they're in some sort of church. Uh, it's a really wide really church, wide. like right photo yeah. or not photo. Well, it's not a, they weren't cameras Painting. back then. I know. So anyway. So. I mean, um, We'll just kind of talk about Napoleon's ego. I have a good, good mm-hmm. quote from Napoleon oh, himself, the man himself. Um, he said, quote, everything on earth is soon to be forgotten, except the opinion we leave imprinted on history. Um, and Napoleon was very uh, aware of this and, and thought, had this kind of mentality um, ingrained in them. He was a man obsessed with leaving his own legacy. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of skip some of the kind of smaller nuances and just kind of come to Napoleon's rise of power. Uh, he became really popular after a lot of successes in battle that seemed to kind of unify the nation. Um, and then he led a coup, essentially, on Paris and was elected first consul um, and then eventually decided first consul wasn't good enough for him and decided to crown himself emperor. Um, and this was after he did a plebiscite for this, right? Or was that after? Was that later yeah. on? Didn't he run like a couple like quote-unquote like plebiscites? Like he had like all the common people like vote, oh, or like but not yeah. like they didn't, they weren't really voting. It was obviously rigged, but it was exactly like to make him seem as he was somewhat like democratically elected. Yeah, that's I and mean, that's how he became um, emperor for life, first consul, first consul at, at the yeah. first point. Yeah. Um, so when he kind of decided to make himself emperor, he knew that this was his chance to unify the French people. Uh, up until this point, you had so many different factions that were still vying for power. In France, you had the, um, the leftovers from the revolution um, who kind of wanted a really re- radical republican state. The sans couleur. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you had the, the people who were the monarchists who were sad that the king was gone and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, sad about the tradition. And then um, like a there are a the, couple kind of monarchists like the Bourbons and the Orleanists. Exactly. Even, even there were factions within the factions. Yeah. It was very split. Yeah. Um, and so he kind of tried, decided to try and rely on ceremony to try and bring people together. Um, but as we'll see, this really didn't please anyone. Um, if you pull up the image, you'll see a lot of stuff going on. And you'll see a lot of different um, ways in which Napoleon was trying to cater to, to different groups. Um, and one of the one of the biggest questions that he had when he was trying to decide uh, how to go about his coronation was, should the Pope attend? Uh, the Pope was not happy that France had gone through the revolution because it upset the, the uh, power structure in Europe. It was a very anti-Catholic, at least, revolution. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it scared a lot of the monarchs across Europe. Um, and Napoleon himself was not a religious man by any means. Um, 
but he would realize how important it was to have religion be a part of, of his ceremony and his authority. Um, and the, the Pope was not uh, originally declined. Um, he said he would not come to the coronation. Which was um, like a huge insult. Like Exactly. That was the, for the Pope to be at your coronation was like the expected thing. Especially if, like, if you're the King of England or of, you know, one of the German like papal states or whatever. Yeah. Like, the Pope was going to be there. Yeah. I mean, the Pope had only traveled to France to crown a king twice mm-hmm. um, in all of French history. Once was in 754 and once in 816. All the other French kings had gone to Rome to get coronated. Uh, and But Napoleon wanted the Pope to come to him. Yeah. Because Napoleon... Napoleon had a huge ego. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't, you know, he didn't really, like, bow to the papal power. That wasn't his thing. Yeah. He wasn't a religious man. Yeah. Uh, and so he wanted to assert his power over the French church to show that he had control over the clergy as just as much as he had control over every other um, thing. And he also wanted to give challenge to the Holy Roman Empire, which was still an authority in, in, in the time. Um, and so he wanted to, you know, be able to invade and conquer all that land and have it under his control. Um but the the Pope eventually did uh, end up going to the ceremony, as you can see in the painting. He's just hanging out behind Napoleon, um, looking very bored. Sad, yeah, he's essentially upset. like hidden. Uh, if you can't see him right away, if you look at Napoleon, the guy holding the crown with the gold, uh, le- the gold olive branches around his head, he's almost he's immediately behind Napoleon with his uh, the miter uh, and the hat. But he's like not the central figure at all. Uh, he's, he's half, he's stuck in between two people, um, right next to a bishop or archbishop, I guess. Uh, he's not, he's not like a central figure in this painting at all. He's on the dais, but he's not like important. Your eye isn't immediately drawn to him. And this is the Pope we're talking about. At this point in time, like the Pope is still a huge, huge, huge power in the world, commands a lot of respect from most people, uh, and still has armies at his command at this point in time. Uh, like generally the Pope is considered like a very powerful figure and but he's pushed to the back in this painting Napoleon commissioned of his of the coronation. Yeah. So obviously like the respect for the pope is not there. Yeah. Um and Napoleon um kind of insult made more insults to the pope. Um typically in the coronation ceremony there's a thing called the act of atonement. Uh, anointment, not uh, two very different things. Uh, basically, the monarch would take off their shirt or reveal part of their upper chest, and that would be anointed by the Pope. Um, but Napoleon only stripped down to a um, very subtle satin tunic. Um, oh, fancy. So he wouldn't go all the way and um, <laughs> just kind of insulted the, the church by showing that he had no intention to submit to it. Um and then he, he climbed up the steps of the altar and made a gesture that's really become iconic whenever you think of Napoleon in this ceremony. Um, he took the crown from the Pope's hands and placed it on his own head. Um, exactly, which was, the Pope was supposed to put it on Napoleon's head yeah. as a gesture that the church is giving the person power, or yeah. like the power comes to the Lord. But Napoleon was like, no, exactly. I'm going to do it for myself. Um, the thing is, this has actually been planned. Um, everyone in the audience... Uh, knew it was going to happen. I don't know if the Pope knew it was going to happen. Um, but apparently there had been chatter. People had kind of been talking in the pews and stuff like that and in the in the rows in the audience. Um, but as soon as this happened, everyone just 
sat in silence for a few minutes uh, because they were still amazed that he went through with it, even though if they, they knew that he was going to do it. And this has become like the quintessential Napoleon act. Um, it wasn't just becoming legitimized. Um, his his emperor, imperial authority was being legitimized. He was self-legitimizing himself. Exactly, yeah. His power <laughs> wasn't coming from anywhere outside of him. His power was strictly coming from his person, Yeah, which was a huge thing, huge thing because at this point, like the divine right of kings was still, like, a big idea at this point. Like, the power of, uh, of you know, rulers on Earth didn't come from their own, like, their own selves. It came from outside of them. It came from, you know, the Christian God. But yeah. Napoleon was saying, no, my power comes from me. It comes through my person. Yeah. Um, and then he, he turns around and does what you can see is happening in the painting where he crowns um, his wife, um, which is interesting that this painting he commissioned doesn't include the act that he is now most notorious for. Exactly. I'm sure there are representations of the coronation that weren't um, done by him that uh, showed this act. But mm-hmm. the, the one Napoleon commissioned of for himself does not show his most famous act. Yeah. Commissioned um, Jacques-Louis David to David. do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this was the painting. Is The guy who did the tennis court oath also did this painting. Yeah. Um, and it's exactly because he knew that that moment was controversial, that he didn't want that to be depicted in the painting that would be cementing his image for the rest of eternity. Um, the, the kind of next, kind of the last really important thing that happened um, was he made a, a, an oath. He swore an oath on the Bible um, and basically just said that he would maintain the uh, integrity of the Republic and basically trying to set himself up to seem a lot like the protector of the Republic and the protector of people's rights. Um, and so it was kind of a social social contract between him and the French people. Uh, but it was also kind of a, a political uh, contract because um, this was a very a secular contract between him and the people and the Republic itself. Uh, it wasn't signed... You know, wasn't he wasn't being ordained by God to protect the French Empire? It was him saying, "Hey, I'm going to keep the liberties and the, protect the Republic and all that stuff," which he wouldn't really do in in all the full senses, all the civil liberties. Uh, but he was trying to enshrine all the values of the, of the revolution into his um, empire, which doesn't make sense. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and this is where things start to fall apart. Exactly. Um, you keep in mind the the revolution was in itself supposedly for democracy. It's a pro democratic revolution. Exactly. Power to the people. And now one one emperor, who one man who would soon claim himself to be emperor, is saying, "Oh, I will embody all these traditions that the revolution fought for within myself," which yeah. is entirely self contradictory. Yeah. Um, I mean, this just made everyone upset. Um, his he was trying to unify everyone, and it failed spectacularly. Um, there were kind of like three main groups um, that would respond to this. First off, there were the Republicans, the leaders of the revolution and the leaders, leaders of the Republican government. They were, of course, upset because this was essentially a return to monarchy. He was crowning himself emperor. Um, maybe, maybe he wasn't a bourbon king, but he was Emperor Napoleon. Um, so they were upset about that. And they also hate, they also hated how the Pope had been invited in the first place. They hated this, uh, the religious sense of this. Exactly. So even though Napoleon himself wasn't religious, he still included religion. Uh, and having them there still gave like 
the I guess the benefit of the doubt or still gave them like the imprimatur of religious at the time of religion at the time, which the Republicans didn't like. Yeah. Um, so okay, you know the Republicans weren't happy, but since the Pope was there, maybe the Catholics were happy. <laughs> no, no. Um, they hated how Napoleon had treated the Pope um, and how Napoleon crowned himself. The Pope said, "You're coming to me, Pope. Suck it up. Yep. Get in your horse and come over here." Uh, so they were pissed off about that. Um, Okay, well, you know, he's crowning himself emperor. Maybe the people who, the royalists, or those who miss the old Bourbon monarch would be happy. Nope. No. Uh, they simply just rejected the ceremony outright. Um, the, it wasn't, they saw him as not a legitimate king, not a legitimate monarch and leader. and Because, um, you know, he wasn't a noble. He wasn't born into a noble house, a royal French house. He didn't have the history behind him. Yeah. And they didn't like that at all. He wasn't like landed gentry. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't have large tracts of land when he was born, uh, so they didn't really, they didn't accept him as one of their own. Exactly. So he tried to, you know, he tried to like make everyone like him, uh, but no one ended up liking him. Yeah, except exactly. for like the peasants and the common people. He had yeah. a pretty broad base of support there. True. Um, and another really quick way that that um, the Republicans were upset was that. Um, the, the oath that Napoleon made was a, very similar to the oath that the king had made um, during the revolution because they, the revolutionaries, before executing the king, uh, made him swear an oath before everyone. That essentially made him into a constitutional monarch. Um, and then the radicals of the revolution decided that wasn't enough and they chopped off his head uh, when he kind of tried to go against that. Um, so there's some similarities between that and so people were upset about that. But, you know, just another, looking at the painting you can see how you wouldn't get a sense of anyone being upset, really, by the, the painting. It's grand. It's fantastic. The light is shining on Napoleon. Uh, everyone yeah, sees all of the, them. the paintings, sorry to interrupt, uh, like it's dark at the edges and then slowly just comes in with the circle, the brightest light focusing on Napoleon. Uh, who's at the bottom? He's like a, it's the weird like bottom third of the portrait, but it just yeah. shows how grand everything is by the large spaces up top. Yeah. And it's actually also interesting, kind of almost more to the center than Napoleon is even, is um, you see a woman sitting um, in kind of the background, and she's flanked by um, two people to her right and three people to her left. She's sitting. Yeah. And um, that's actually Napoleon, supposed to be Napoleon's mom. But the fact was Napoleon's mom was never there at the coronation. <laughs> uh, she was mad at Napoleon because Napoleon had been fighting with his brothers and oh, kind of made, made them mad. <laughs> so, yeah, in order to protest that, she said, no, little little Napoleon. <laughs> what a power Well, movie. baby, I'm like, not coming to your coronation. fighting with your brothers. <laughs> you may be emperor of France, but I'm not coming. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, I feel like moms never really change in that sense, mm. um, even if you're Napoleon. She said, a proud, proud mom was not there. Yeah. Um, not happy with her <laughs> little baby Bonaparte. Um, yeah. And um, one, one more thing uh, that's kind of of interest is on the, to the left of the painting, there's a big kind of tarp or kind of, I don't know what you call that. Like a hanging, I guess, maybe? Like a wall, a wall carpet? Yeah. Um, a tapestry? I can't yeah, it's tapestry, it I think. Yeah. Um, and there's I like a little, wall carpet better. That, that works. Yeah. There's almost, and there's little dots on it. It's almost like it's a polka dot thing. Yeah. Um, those are probably um, supposed to be bees. They're not dots, they're bees. Yes, exactly. Um, and bees are very important. 
They make honey. Yes, they do. Um, they were actually the symbol of the Merov- Merovingian Merovingian dynasty, uh, which was like the old medieval um, kings of France. Yeah, I only know how to pronounce Merovingians because uh, it's in the Matrix. Um, okay, <laughs> which is I'll divulge that secret. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, they were they were ancient dynasty. Um, we actually, when we talked about uh, the monks, uh, the Merovingians were a big part of where some of those education treatises came from. Yeah. Uh, but this is a, so this is he's trying to call back uh, to the days of ancient uh, French leaders. Yeah, uh, which would further insult royalists and further insult republicans and further insult Catholics because those were supposed to be Catholic kings and he wasn't essentially. Um, so here you can see Napoleon in his time trying to make his own image, but it would fail spectacularly, even though we can still admire the painting for what it is. Um, it's in, very interesting if you go into the analysis of the image itself. Uh, but it's also interesting to think about how Napoleon's image was enshrined and how it what it meant to the French people over time. Exactly. And so to do that, we're going to move uh, forward into the future, uh, the dawn of the 20th, 20th century, uh, late 1900s, early 20th century, uh, fin de siècle Europe, which we've talked about um, in other portions of other podcasts as well. Um, and just look at how like the legend of Napoleon, or what some people are called, like call the Napoleonic cult, um, lasted in France and how he was becoming, how he was uh, used in popular culture as an image. Uh, and the main source for a lot of this stuff, it comes from Venita Datas, which is a great name. Um, <laughs> her work, um, Heroes and Legends of Fin de Cicla, France, Gender, Politics, and National Identity. Um, she is a, a professor at Wes- Wellesley College. Yeah. Uh, so I actually like smart. that title a lot. Heroes and Legends. It's oh, it's a, a great. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, sounds like a D and D game. Yeah, true. Almost. A lot um, of history books. The, the titles are very very bad. dull. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, there's like a um, contemporary analysis of yeah. the statistical <laughs> life of everyday yeah. peasants in their outhouses, or like the Mediterranean. It's like great. I mean, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. So anyway, um, so Vanita Dada's argument is that. I mean, while Napoleon was still a huge figure in French culture, until like around 1890, um, the First War, Napoleon really wasn't studied um, like seriously as an academic person. And even when he um, became serious to studies, um, there was like a huge revival at this time of the Napoleonic cult. So Napoleon was obviously a huge figure in France uh, while he was uh, in rule and then even after he was out of power. But after he was out of power... Um, it somewhat went away as like a cult. Like they were still there, but Napoleon was seen as like not really like this conquering hero. He was like, he was, they tried to push him to the side almost, like yeah. try to forget him in France. But then he became, he got re, he was reimagined starting in the 1890s. This time not as like this world changing epic apocal figure, but as like an intimate one to quote Vdata, uh, fashioned by each individual's needs and consumed as a popular entertainment. Mm-hmm. So Napoleon um, was no longer remembered as like this world conquering hero, but just as like a pop culture phenomenon to be consumed. It's like if George Washington was now like used to sell coffee or something. Yeah, like that's what became Napoleon in or for like early twentieth century, late nineteenth century France. Yeah, uh, he was sorry, early. 
20th, late 21st century. I don't know what I'm talking about. Late 19th, early 20th century France. Um, he became just like almost like an advertisement mm-hmm. uh, for certain things. Uh, so he was like, he was using plays. The Napoleon Legend was called upon. It's like a representation of men and religion. But then he was also just put on like, like early cards, like cards, um, and just like generally used in theaters, um, not as like this, like a very intimate portrait of this person. When he was like seen in plays, it wasn't as he wasn't like striding over the battlefield, yeah, fighting, uh, you know, individuals, fighting at Waterloo or whatever. He was like portrayed, you know, in his bedroom with like a lover or like in his room arguing over some small point. He was no longer uh, this the world historical, I guess, is the best word that Dada uses, uh, character, as he wanted to be when he was first uh, crowned as emperor. Mm -hmm. The ego was taken out of Napoleon, essentially. And he, I mean, he was dead, so he couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And he became just like a face. Um, He was just a historical character that resonated with a lot of French people at the time. They were worried about where their country was going. They were worried about what they were going to do. It was on the eve of World War I, as we talked about. There was a lot of change. Modernity was coming about. And Napoleon was seen as this strong figure, but he wasn't seen as like a figure that they wanted to have back. He yeah. was just, he was stuck in the past, and because he was stuck in the past and not really alive and not like viable as a a way to lead the country forward, he was just used as an image. He's used mm-hmm. as a symbol. So what was the what was his quote that his he'll be remembered uh, on the stage? It's like nothing in. Let's say. I'm making Mitch scramble right now. Everything on earth is soon to be forgotten except opinion, except the opinion we leave on hi- on history. Exactly. So in the end, at least right before World War One, he was proved wrong. Yeah. The opinion that he wanted to leave in history was not the one that was remembered. Yeah. It was completely changed by the people at the time um, for their own uses, which, I mean, always happens. Mm-hmm. You can't con- – it's impossible to control how you're viewed throughout history by anybody. Mm-hmm. People are – the, the quote is, people are trapped by history. That's a Marx quote, uh, the bastardized Marx quote. Um, but they are. Like, uh, Napoleon was trapped by both what he did, uh, what happened after that, and how people who are currently living see him. Yeah. Once, even while you're alive, you cannot control how people view you and how people are going to use you. And Napoleon did not want to be used. He didn't want to be used to sell things. That yeah. was his goal was to be seen as, like, the hero of France, you know, the, a world conqueror. But in the end, he was just seen as someone who would be like a good thing to sell coffee for. Or even, I mean, talk a bit about his um, adaptations and plays and stuff like yeah. that. Um, some of the plays weren't even about him. He was a secondary exactly. character. Yeah. It was either about like his son, uh, who would die in battle, I think. Um, and he was just seen as like an emotional man. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a broken man, too. An old guy, too. Uh, exactly. And so... He wasn't, yeah, he was no longer the conquering hero. He was no longer the grand emperor um, and, and invader of Russia. He was just an emotional guy. Exactly. There was, I mean, there's one play by uh, a famous um, playwright, Jip, uh, Napoleonette, which isn't, it's about Napoleon's, like, niece. It's not even about him. He's just, um, quote-unquote, seen as... Um, He's just the heroine's godfather. He's not really, like, part of it all. Mm-hmm. He was just a character in the background. Yeah. Uh, so it's, like, completely divorcing itself from what Napoleon wanted his legacy to be uh, because he could have no control over it. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because this was about the same time that Joan of Arc was starting to be used again as, um, in some similar ways as Napoleon, but she just became very, very popular in French mythology uh, once more, but she was almost more of a heroic military yeah, she figure. she was way more valorized than Napoleon was. Yeah, um, which is interesting, that the dichotomy between those two. Um, exactly. You have, on one hand, you know, uh, you have Napoleon who made... France, pretty much the most powerful country in the world, while he was in charge for at least a part of his time there. And then you have Joan of Arc, who couldn't even win the war for France. And yet, Joan of Arc is, during this time frame, on a much higher pedestal uh, than Napoleon is, because of what was happening at the time of the country, and because of... um, the history that had happened in between the years of their lives. Yeah. So uh, well, once again, like they, you, it's impossible to control uh, how people are going to use you uh, in the popular culture, and well, it, might, it might be way far from what you intended or expected. Which, in a sense, is actually, it's, it's understandable. It can't be helped, but it's also kind of a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a historian and you're trying to write a book about uh, Lincoln. Uh-huh. For example, there's hundreds of thousands of books about Lincoln, uh, but no one's going to write a book about Lincoln the same way that you are going to. Because exactly. as much as you can try to view Lincoln as his contemporaries would as much as possible, but some part of your modern day vision and understanding of things like racism and emancipation and equality um, and what total war is, is going to inevitably leak through that. Um, And so it's something that's great because it it keeps, it helps us to continue to understand and analyze historical figures and events in different ways from different perspectives. Um, And it's always changing. And it just, it makes the field of history very interesting. And you can see that um, if you read a book from 1910 about the Civil War versus 19, 1999. Exactly. Yeah, it's why we have, it's why historiography is such an important thing. It's looking at how people, how historians write that has changed over time. Uh, Yeah, like Mitch said, looking at, you know, a history book written in 1910 about Lincoln versus a history book written now or 1999, the changes are huge. Even, you know, books written two years apart are giant. Like the development of different ways and styles of doing history as well as just where people are placed in the historical, uh, realm like you hear quote-unquote about like people being like rehabilitated by historians Mm -hmm. like a lot of times grant is seen as someone who like historians are quote-unquote rehabilitating as a president but in the next 20 years the opinions the historical opinion of grant you know may go way down again Mm -hmm. like just now because we're seeing somewhat of like a revival of people calling him at least a decent president if not as he was used to be seen as like an outright bad one that could change, you know, yeah. within the next five years. Yeah. Or like, you know, if you're, um, if you're at, oh, if your country's at war, maybe you're going to start looking at Napoleon as a general, exactly. his strategies, you're going to view it just, you're only going to care about that aspects of him. You're not going to care about his emotional side or how he was used uh, for advertisements and, and media purposes like that. So, you know, the, your average popular culture consumer also views uh, historical figures and events differently um, depending on their time and what they're interested in just as much as a historian does. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that's good enough for today. I agree. Um, Thanks for listening. Uh, If this isn't loud enough, we apologize, man. I'm sorry. We're just trying to help your ears, you know, not get blown out 
You, every, not everything has to be just, loud, just cue, bro. Cue the outro. Cue the outro. <laughs> uh, I'm Dylan. I'm Mitch. And this is the greatest podcast uh-huh. in history. <laughs> <laughs>